Let me go ahead and say that you're listening to Truth Quest with Melody and on KHEN LPFM Radio 106.9 Salida, Colorado, community supported radio. And if you want to get a um, uh, get listen to tonight's program or any past programs of TruthQuest, you can go to www.givemesometruth.info or linked from the khen.org website. And my um, my guest tonight is Alan Watt, and he has his own program on RBN uh, Republic Broadcasting Network. And then he also has his own website on cutting through the Ma- cutting through the matrix. And there he has a lot of his audio files and extensive audio files and and books that are available. And that's how he gets supported. <laughs> Anything else you want to add to that, Alan? That's about it. As I say, it's such a massive, vast topic that you you can't cram it in um, when there's so much to to go over to try and give people who don't know terribly much outside the mainstream media or their own education um, uh, how big this is and how it's been on the go for an awful long time. Nothing in the world happens by chance on a massive scale. It takes a lot of planning and negotiations for any major thing to occur. And um, when we look at what we think is a financial crash, uh, is it really all an accident or is it simply part of the next part of the agenda? The bankers aren't losing, as we notice. Uh, they're guaranteed um, not all the money that went to money heaven, but they're also guaranteed the money they claim that they lost um, by the taxpayer. And we find the big players again, the, the big world socialists like Hillary Clinton stating, and she's up on YouTube saying it, she says we can use this financial crisis um, um, for our advantage. Well, Rahm Emanuel and does the same too, doesn't he? Exact same thing. So when you hear a lot of people at the top saying the same thing, um, you, you know it's part of the agenda. Uh, because that, how else could they bring up the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank to its supposed proper status? unless they did something like this. And, of course, Britain was the first country to deregulate um, the economic uh, system, basically, uh, let the free market just roll and impeded. The U.S. followed suit. Uh, they knew darn well that if no one was watching them, then the sky was the limit with the big bubbles. So they created it. They created the, 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 the situation um, years ago, and it happened exactly as planned. And then they turned around and said, my goodness, we're all surprised. We'll have to get the World Bank involved here as a more efficient controller, and the IMF uh, will come up to its proper status. It's all planned this way. But they even plan these. It isn't just a few years in advance. Some of these are hundred, couple hundred years in advance, are, are yeah. they not? Yeah. And I was hearing the Chinese may even go as far as uh, a thousand years in advance. Yes. Um, as I say, there's nothing really new because all, knowledge is never destroyed or, or forgotten by those in control. Knowledge is power, especially when it's, it's power to do with the workings of human nature, how to control populations, guide populations. They never lose that. And I used to wonder, in fact, um, why these big institutions, these foundations, um, used top philosophers and historians for hundreds of years to help guide uh, parliaments and governments. 
And of course, it's because they, they pull them in. They say, well, this happened uh, a thousand years ago. Um, this king did this, and he wanted the, the, the country to go this direction. How did they do it? And then they go back all the way even to Plato and say, well, it's all done by formula. And Plato knew this, too. It's formula. What it, When uh, each... each um, for example, a simple formula is exactly what did happen. Deregulate the banks, encourage them to go to, 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 for the, the sky with massive profits and, and bubble industries, basically, bubble stocks. Dress them up all fancy, but it's still nonsense to begin with. There's nothing there to begin with. It's all marketing and selling and marketing and selling until you've got massive bubbles. And then, of course, it will have to fall by itself. When customers come in and ask for their money, well, guess what? You know, the, the stock really is valueless. And the number one, I read from a book from a top economist uh, that worked with governments, he said, he said it was, um, it was irreligious, he said, or sacramental, sacrilege. Be sacrilege for an economist ever to, to give the bad news to the public. They must always lie to the, and say everything is fine. When your president comes out, the top man, and tells you all to panic because this could cause a depression worse than the last Great Depression, that's intentional. That's an, and it was from President Bush's, Bush's uh, statements that suddenly, sure enough, that's when everybody grabbed their money and asked for it and back out of the stocks, etc., and the whole thing crashed. This was designed this way. Otherwise, Mr. Bush would have said it's fine, and we'd believe him. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the interesting parts about that I, I find is first they'll act like they don't want the information out, and they will do everything they can, even even eliminate people to keep certain information coming out. And then it's gotten to the point now where you see that they leak it out through certain sources, mm-hmm. and or it's like they're con- it's like a mental conditioning before they announce that they're going to do something. It is. Um, it's treating the public, in a sense. They, they put up a trial balloon, and we take things in almost uh, on a, a subconscious basis, much of, the, much of the news that we hear. But it, it, your, your mind will remember that initial... It's called predictive programming in psychology. Uh-huh. Uh, your mind hears it, and then the next, the, a month later, they'll come out with some more on that same thing. And... And then a third thing comes out, and then eventually you're convinced of it, but you've never rationally understood it. You've never rationally thought it through or reasoned it for yourself. You simply come to the conclusion that's presented to you by the media at the very end of it. That's predictive programming. You train, they train us like animals. It's Pavlovian techniques they actually use on the public. Right, and then they, and they love the Hegelian dialectics too, and that's a that's a fun one trying to overcome yeah. <laughs> when, when you're out there trying to educate the public and, and then you got to get them to understand that, well, no, it's not what you think it is. <laughs> yes, and again, uh, the Galen te- technique uh, takes the premise that society by itself would become a static society. It wouldn't change. Now, most of us would say, that's fine. Don't, don't make it any worse than it is. Just stop right here. But remember, if you have an agenda, you've got to have constant change in society. So you must create the organization that will come forth with the demands for a change. Uh, now, you know you're going to have resistance amongst the populace of what they're going to say. So you supply the opposition to yourself. 
pretending to speak on behalf of the populace. And then the two of you will negotiate, and then there will be compromise. Now, compromise for the populace is defeat. You've given something up. And it's easier to give up the next part with the next compromise and the next compromise. In other words, you can't, stand, you can't start and take the first compromise with these guys. These guys are ruthless. They, they, will, they will always get what they want, piece by piece by piece in the Fabian system and techniques. Well, when you Therefore, you cannot negotiate, negotiate away any rights whatsoever at the beginning. Unfortunately, we're way beyond that point now. Right, with these round tables and these consensus meetings and uh, various other tactics that they utilize, I mean, they're training people in in this this type of process, and it comes down to the local levels that all meetings are carried out through this public input process that goes through the same um, same agenda. Yes. But we are out of the picture anyway. In fact, many of the public, much of the public are trained that there are organizations out there, official organizations that speak on their behalf. And that is the pretense, of course, that is put out there by the non-governmental organizations. They pretend to speak on behalf of the people. We don't elect them. And they're, they're all given their instructions by the big foundations like, like the, um, let's say, the, the Rockefeller Foundation, Ford, Carnegie, etc., so everything, even like our educational system, our health system, our uh, our governments, our everything within our lives has been thought out by some think tank or, or other and micromanaged down to the to every aspect of our life. Is yes, uh, you got to understand that if you want to take over a country or a world, you must then stand back like a like an alien who has never seen it before. And simply study it, watch it, watch every facet of society, what society needs, what categories of society need, what's different between them, how are their interactions, how do they spend their time, how do they adapt to different educations. And, and it's quite simple then to, through culture, industry, and uh, creation, and media, and the educational system. That's why you have an international educational authority under UNESCO. Uh, then it's quite easy then to, to uh, reprogram the public along a certain path with every intake of children into school. You, each intake is further along in indoctrination than the previous intake. It's that perfect. Yeah. And so why would you think that they would uh, be so apt to utilize such negatory um, treatment of humans as opposed to doing it with positive reinforcement? Uh, because because they do see us like animals. Remember at the top, at the foundations that help finance all these NGOs, the same foundations that are the parallel government, that's what they were set up to be, to fund the NGOs as a parallel government. Um, they believe in eugenics. In fact, if you go back into their histories, the American Eugenics Society in the U.S. was set up by the Carnegie Foundation and then overtaken and run by the, the, the Rockefeller Foundation. So eugenics and Darwinism is a big, big part of this world socialist agenda. And, and going back to what I said earlier, Karl Marx wanted to dedicate his third uh, publication of his book uh, to Darwin because Darwin helped validate uh, the, their agenda, their socialist agenda, where the intellectual elite, the fittest, should rule the lessers, basically. 
Well, didn't they also do some kind of inbreeding of sorts? Yeah, they do. In fact, Charles Darwin himself was the product of inbreeding because he, his father, and his grandfather, and maybe more before him, I don't know, had only taken wives from one other family, and that was the Wedgwood family in England. Now, that's just the Darwins doing this special selective breeding. Um, when Charles Darwin's wife died at Wedgwood, he married his mother's sister so a Wedgwood as well. Today you have Anthony Wedgwood Ben, who has been up in the British politics after his father, Lord uh, um, Ben, uh, who are also descended from the Wedgwoods and the Darwins. I mean, these, these things still go on, you know. And they were just one main family. And you'll find some of the biggest uh, radical, or people who've radically changed society and education in the past, like the Darwins, have been involved in special breeding programs as well. Well, when, when you were talking about the, the Chinese somewhat, I, I, we've got Maury Strong that lives over in this area, but I'm, I'm pretty much aware that he's over in China at this point in time. Yes. Do you think he's doing a lot of his uh, spreading of the Agenda 21 uh, aspect over there at this point? Yes. Um, Maurice Strong was picked up by Rockefeller when he was a young man and groomed by Rockefeller personally to do what he's doing. And he's been at the head of the World Bank, he's been the head of different UN uh, uh, parts and foundations, etc. And even uh, now he's still working for the UN in China uh, to do with uh, uh, not just the cultural aspect of China and the, the alteration of the cultural part of it as it blend with the West, but also to do with the trade part as well. But what was interesting was, was that... Um, a documentary was done by public broadcasting. It may have been the CBC before that, I don't know. But at uh, one Sunday afternoon when it was raining, I watched it a few years ago, two or three years ago, and they showed you Maurice Strong and at his age, still, still putting in 12 hours a day at work and so on. And a little cutaway in, in the thing, he went to a graveyard in China to put flowers at uh, his aunt's grave. And his aunt grave was buried next next to Mao Zedong. And, Are you talking uh, about it, Anna? Anna Strong? Yeah, and, it's, oh, it's, okay. and it, it said that a great friend of the revolution should help. The, she was an advisor to Mao Zedong. So these families have been revel professional uh, revolutionaries down through at least the last couple of hundred years, probably. Well, I was looking up a little bit into Al Gore's background, and his family was heavily involved with Russia, correct? You're heavily involved, and um, <clears throat> he, he uh, Armand Hammer also groomed him. Armand Hammer of the big uh, Armand Hammer company. Uh, in fact, the father changed his name to to symbolize the Armand Hammer of the of the Soviet uh, communist system, uh, and he took that surname. But Armand Hammer uh, had a had a a suite next to Lenin and then Stalin. Uh, at the same time, you go back to the U.S. Uh, unimpeded to both countries during the uh, supposed revolutionary period, etc., and post-revolutionary period. Uh, but to see the West set up uh, the Soviet Russia, um, Trotsky himself came from New York with the money that was to set it up. He was caught at Halifax uh, Customs with the money on board a ship. And President Wilson uh, was told to get him a, a passport quickly. He sent a courier up to Halifax, and he was given a U.S. citizenship passport, uh, and the Canadians let him go. He went over to Germany, 
with the money, even all the way up through Russia, and that's, that was what funded the revolution. So the bankers did it. And you'll find that the big Baruchs uh, and so on and different banks were behind the complete funding of the Soviet revolution. So you're finding that a lot of the current leadership still heavily ties back into the past histories of, of these various supposedly opposing countries. And uh, absolutely. It was, it was a classical dialectic. Um, Russia itself would have starved to death in the early days, too. There was so much American aid going over, primarily American aid, shoes, uh, clothing, everything to keep them uh, alive during the first few, few years. Uh, the Red Cross was involved, the uh, Salvation Armies. There was even an America-Russia Help Society set up by the U.S. government. Uh, we don't realize how much we put into keeping them uh, a communist. And then, of course, once they were up and running, uh, we fed them right up, up until... Um, uh, the Berlin Wall collapsed because they couldn't even grow enough to feed themselves. Well, they had a tendency to play down a lot of the, uh, if, I'm, if I'm recalling this correctly, the, a lot of the technology of the Russians, and, but once they combined in those technologies particularly, I mean, they may have been much further ahead than than we even know, but, but at this point in time, they're, they're so... Uh, Amalgamated in their space program, and it sounds mm-hmm. like they're much, much further along than we even have a clue as to what what's going on. I was just looking at a uh, website for a symposium going on in Colorado Springs last week, and I mean they were talking about the space tourism as though it was already a functioning uh, yeah. organization, uh, functioning entity. I don't know how much so, but I sure would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. Yes, uh, even before the Berlin Wall came down, the U.S. already had a U.S.-Soviet program, combined program, uh, working. And again, I used to be astonished as to how, when you read any books on the Cold, written during the Cold War about the Cold War itself, even from universities, they have all these great quotes from famous scientists or politicians saying, that this is a war of technology, those with the, the greatest technology will win it. Well, every year uh, from World War II onwards, um, Britain and Europe and the U.S. and all the other countries sent their top scientists over to Russia for a world science meeting. I said, well, that's the last thing you would do with your best scientists who know they all work for your defense department. Why would you let them mix with their supposed enemies in the Soviet Union? I realized then it was all a farce that they were sharing the data at the top. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, and, and so if you have someone like Maury Strong over there in China being heavily involved, and he's the one that had set up the Rio Earth Summit, and yet at the same time they're developing China at such an aggressive rate mm-hmm. uh, and, and over here they're trying to tell us to conserve yeah. what are, are they setting them up for something like they're doing to us? Yes, China you see once they bring down their population and this is the key to it <coughs> if you look at um, old movies that were put out as propaganda pieces but they were very good to watch entertaining but as long as you understood that they were predictive programming look at the, the movie, it was called Silent Green, mm-hmm. uh, written, I think it was done in about the 60s with Charlton Heston. The, it came from a book called Make Room, Make Room. It was put out there as a propaganda piece to terrify the public into 
sterilization, having fewer children, and so on, uh, or you become uh, overcrowded in the big cities and, and you have no food and so on. It was very, a very bleak future that we were painting in it. Well, that all came from think tanks that already discussed the whole future. Uh, when they, they had discussed bringing, overcrowding the, the, the European cities, they discussed this uh, at the end of World War Two in 1946, I think. It was the King George uh, meeting on population control that they all attended. They discussed all of this. And uh, uh, again, you can get the appearance of overpopulation by creating massive immigration, unlimited immigration into pre-existing cities that are not meant uh, to house all of that. And so therefore, you can create little bombays everywhere in a major city if you're not allowed to expand the cities. That's exactly what they've done, and so perception becomes truth. In other words, perception is your truth. It's not a reality, it's the truth that you perceive. Uh, that was the techniques that they've used. But they talked about a post-industrial Europe, a post-industrial America, and all the, the useless eaters, as Bertrand Russell called them, that would be left with no function. They couldn't work in high tech, not everyone suited for it, and therefore they would need a much reduced population. Now, he belonged to the Royal Institute for International Affairs that in the 1930s in their world meetings talked about creating Russia as a world manufacturer for the planet. Uh, as we dwindle in population across Europe over the years, now it might take, uh, according to the military think tanks, by, 19, by 2030, definitely 2050, uh, the population of the world is to drastically start reducing. They don't say why or how it's going to happen. And I've got those particular military, official military uh, think tank websites up on my site and their, their, their documents uh, to do with this. China will also have to be depopulated because it will not need all of that population uh, for manufacturing purposes when the purchasers will be dwindling in numbers as well. Do you think maybe that the, the release of the avian flu and that sort of thing may not be so accidental over in China? Pardon? The release of the avian flu and that sort of thing that's been going on over there. Yeah. The bird flus and that sort. Yeah. Uh, well, China, remember, uh, in fact, you, well, the um, the think tank that advises the British Department of Defense put a 90-page document, which I have on the website, um, in audio archives. Uh, it was followed up immediately by almost a verbatim report from the U.S., Department of Defense going along the same futuristic path, what they see happening in the future. And um, uh, they talk about, as I say, they talk about uh, China drastically starting to depopulate as well as it adopts the ways of the West. Now, they already have a one, what it said in the, their think tank reports is uh, they're almost, believe it or not, China is almost at the, the, the stage where it cannot reproduce itself because of the one child per family policy. If, if two people have one child, if everybody in a, a society only had one child, technically within a generation, your population would be reduced by half. Hmm. You have to produce two children to keep it static. So they have a one child per, fam per family policy. And they also have a governmental imp implemented mandatory abortion if you're pregnant a second time. And they do f drastically follow that out through. Plus, you find in China, um, 
suddenly, again, this was in newspapers a couple of weeks ago, and I read this on the air too, uh, China is now seeing massive birth defects in children, because probably because of the industrial pollution there and the chemicals that they're using. They don't have the safeguards we have here, even though we don't have the factories anymore. Yeah, but um, aren't, well, aren't they shipping them over here? <laughs> they're shipping them over here, but doing the, the processing and all the rest of it, but, but also... Uh, because they were so, set up so quickly to be the manufacturer of the world and were given unrestricted freedom to pollute. Uh, many of the rivers are so are completely stagnant now that there's no life in them at all. And there's been various documentaries have come out where factories pour everything straight into the rivers and everything's died off. And yet the farmers, the main farmers, are still carrying water from the rivers by these buckets and pouring it over their crops, you know. The, the, the pole over the back in the two buckets. Uh, this was shown by a CBC and a BBC documentary on China and the pollution. And um, people are dying off uh, because most of their food is contaminated with heavy metals like cadmium, etc., from the water supplies, and they irrigate all their crops with it. It's so bad that uh, uh, the EU and Canada and the States uh, banned all imports at one point of all food from China because it's so heavily contaminated with heavy metals but I think they may have relaxed it now and interestingly enough we found the stuff that was getting sent for dogs and the dog food and the cat food was killing off the animals <laughs> yeah well I mean if you're into eugenics I would figure that they wouldn't why would they want to control it I mean it seems to me like that would just help them out that's right so, so the, we're dealing with people who are masters at chess at the top and they see everything as a pragmatic stopgap to the next step, to the next step, to the next step. And probably it will work out that way. I don't see anything that will stop this. Uh, I see negotiations will not stop this. These people are, don't negotiate. If they do, you've lost something on the way. Um, so uh, probably by the year 2030, you will see a drastic decline in population uh, across the, the board in the Western world. And we're, we're simply not dying fast enough for the United Nations Population Department. Uh, so they might help us along the way with releasing new diseases and so on. Look at the cancer rates today. Yeah. It's, uh, every, it's... Every, to see, every, every doctor today who's churned out of the universities is given, they're given no history of statistics from, say, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago that doctors were trained in to do with cancer. Some cancers were incredibly rare. Now they're all common, and they're taught that every, every person is going to eventually die of cancer. That's going to be normal, and this is how the young doctors are trained to accept that. So uh, why? Why is it such a massive increase in cancers? Why the massive increase in autism, uh, attention deficit, etc., and, and all the rest of the stuff? Why, why, why? When that happens across the board in society within a few years, and the sterilization too, something has been done to the people, either through food, water, or inoculations. Uh, Julian Huxley and, Al and also Lord Bertrand Russell advocated using all of those methods, including the needle, as they praised it, the needle, to reduce the population. And I think they've been doing it all along, yeah. since the 1950s, definitely. Now, you have often talked about uh, chemtrails or... Uh, in spring of the skies and 
I had been talking to somebody or I'd listened to a, a, an interview with a lady that had actually sent me some um, um, mappings and graphs and stuff. I think it was done by Noah. And it, it was kind of showing to me that they all, not only are they, you know, spraying chemicals. I mean, she has pictures and of that sort of the of the yeah. chemtrails up up there. But then there's also a, a quite a few weather control programs. Oh yes, uh, the weather control programs. Some of it's been published in the past. I've gone through. I did a, a two or three shows on. Um, uh, Dr. Teller, who was a physicist, the guy who discovered or invented the H-bomb, the hydrogen bomb, and he worked for the U.S. government, and he was so eager to get his name in history, he came up with all kinds of ideas, but one of them, back in the 50s, was to spray the entire atmosphere uh, with metallic particles and use Tesla standing wave technology we don't you know, call it harp because of the harp uh, organization the one in alaska and there's 50 odd worldwide um they could then um carry waves across the entire planet if need be definitely across continents and totally control the weather because the metallic particles make it far easier and more efficient for these elf waves to to travel um, plus, they could actually triangulate these standing waves. They bounce it off the ionosphere, and they can make it come down in the exact place or area or, or country or state that they wanted to come down on and totally manipulate the weather. But another effect of it was, and this is written in the United Nations Treaty that was signed by all uh, active participants uh, for weather warfare. I think it was signed in 1978. Uh, they said that this very technology basically um, rendered the atom bomb obsolete because it had so much potential uh, capability of uh, controlling uh, nations and, country and, and, and whole continents, if need be, uh, where there's a fantastic weapon. But they could also put a secondary signal on the harp. Now, the harp by itself can create earthquakes, and this is, they signed this into the treaty that they wouldn't use it on each other in warfare purposes, but they're allowed, by the way, that it says nothing about using it on their own people. All, mm. all UN treaties are the same. Uh, and therefore, they can create earthquakes, they can create um, tornadoes, hurricanes, uh, very hot weather, uh, very cold weather, uh, on and on it goes. Um, they could even create tsunamis with it. Um, but they said if they attach a secondary signal to the harp signal, uh, piggybacking on it, a certain frequency, uh, they can literally alter the the behavior of people. And the, the report stated that the easiest thing to do with people was to make them very lethargic or make them very tired or, or depressed or even suicidal. Um, or they could, uh, just by altering it a little bit within the brain frequency, uh, they could make you hyper-aggressive um, and uh, so, so this is a, a tremendous technology. This falls under what they call technotronic warfare, which Brzezinski talked about in his own book. Now, he was one of the head of the NSA at one point, so he should know. He was head um, of the, I didn't realize he was head of NSA. Hmm. Yeah, he was a top advisor to the NSA. Yeah. Yeah. I know he's been doing a lot of advising with the current 
with the current candidates, him yes. or his, or his, his uh, children, I think. Yes, and, and he is also a member of the Trilateral Commission um, that also is part of the CFR group. It's, a big, it's not a separate part. They deal with a much bigger part of it and a Bilderberger and so on. Um, so, yeah, he, in his own book, Between Two Ages, he's got a chapter called The Technotronic Era where he talks about a technique used on the public that will alter their behavior and so on, and the public will be completely unaware of it as technotronic warfare. It's just amazing. We have to watch our water, our air, our everything. What I tell the people is they don't realize that total war, now total war is a term used in the military. Total war was declared on all the people's of the world a long time ago and they have not been told yeah. well I, I I kind of uh, liken it to the revolution has will be over the day that we start deciding that you know it's time for us to revolt because the revolution was the revolution of the elites yes uh, it's true um, they're very good at getting us to, to have revolutions, uh, and we never get what we want at the end of it. Or if we think we do, we really haven't, because shortly we were told otherwise. It goes off in a different direction. Um, but that, they've always used revolutions, um, both bloody revolutions and, and also cultural revolutions. Most, most changes in society are done through cultural indoctrination over a gradual period of time. And, of course, if you look at what happened, really, in society from World War II, uh, the speed-up uh, of the separation of the, of the generations, they separated the teenagers. In fact, they invented the term teenager to help separate one group from the older ones so they wouldn't listen to them. That was part of the strategy. The term teenager did not exist before that. Hmm. And they gave them a... They marketed a culture to them, fashion, music, and so on. And it simply sped up through the 60s. They came out with something they'd worked on since the 1920s and 30s when they had um, the first depression. And the first depression, they tried to bring in a world socialism. Out of that, didn't quite work. But they also um, gave prohibition. It made booze cans very exciting places for young people to go. They gave them the miniskirt back in the 20s and the Roaring Twenties and the Charleston dance and so on. Um, they, they gave them cocaine along with the booze that was smuggled along there as well. But the, but the fallout was, rather than create a promiscuous society that would not bond, that was the intention of it. Because they know that the more promiscuous society is, the less chance there is of a, a man or a woman bonding for life with another person. The outcome was that so much unwanted pregnancy, and they put up all of the homes, the boys' towns, and all the rest of it sprung up all over the place, and once for girls to deal with unwanted, it, they couldn't quite pull it off. Plus, venereal disease was rampant. So they went back to the drawing board and using the tax money of the Western countries, the taxpayers' money, they've been working on, on, um, they were working on a contraceptive that would be effective. So when they relaunched the same idea, the miniskirts, uh, promiscuous sex, music, uh, drugs in the 60s, they added to it. Uh, penicillin for the infections and they also gave contraception that was a mandate they first tried it in the 20s and then reintroduced it upgraded it in the 1960s this is an agenda yeah well wouldn't of our drug culture 
had a predecessor kind of like what they did to the Chinese? When the, the Chinese? Yeah, with the opium wars and... and yes, uh, that's the, well, that's right. I mean, if you, I was looking at the, the histories of the, of the Kerry family, the Bushies and different ones, the Yale bunch, you know, and it's the same with the Russells in Britain and so on. They all made fortunes uh, when they all got together and dropped massive bales of hay every day of, of uh, opium on the Chinese shores and uh, basically used drugs to bring down China internally. And people don't realize, too, that the U.S. Uh, and most of the Western powers had bases on the eastern coast of, of China uh, these, these little cantons they created were different than British ones and American ones and so on until the Boxer Rebellion uh, kicked them all out uh, during fierce fighting but it was a, that was the first uh, attempt that we've seen where drugs were used to destroy our people but at the same time they were doing it there um, uh, the Rothschilds through the Bayer Company and other big bankers you always find the bankers always uh, earn to pharmaceuticals too they're pharmaceutical companies uh, this goes all the way back to almost like, Egypt. Like Schiff and... and yeah. yeah, and yeah. Uh, Bayer is the Rothschild one that's still on the right, go right. today. Okay. They right. have other ones too. But so they tried to introduce uh, or substitute um, opium derivatives uh, and opium itself and all kind of... And uh, Britain even to try and drug the public there and to go along with a new system. But the the... The beer at that time was, was so popular uh, and the, the public houses were meeting places where everybody chatted uh, that the, it didn't quite take off. But they put opium and derivatives of op opium in every kind of medicine you can imagine at that time trying to addict the population. You know. So they've tried every dirty trick, so it's nothing new about using drugs. Uh, I read an article about a year ago on air from a special forces uh, man who after the special forces he worked with the US Coast Guard trying to stop drugs coming into the country when he was in uh, one of the Caribbean countries or the, or the South American countries I think it was um, he met another special forces guy that he worked with and this guy says isn't it ironical he says uh, you're working with the Coast Guard to stop drugs being brought into the US he says I'm work working for the US government bringing drugs in well, that's my understanding is the CIA is, like, really huge. In fact, that's probably funding a lot of our government uh, right at this point in time. Is it yes. not? Yeah. So drugs are always... Uh, in fact, I've got an article here in the newspapers, and I've got the, the video, too, where the, the president of Mexico uh, admits about the massive drug problem they, they have, but he says you got to understand there's obviously organization within the U.S., and authority system, he says, uh, that's allowing all this to come into the U.S. in the quantities that is coming in. This isn't smuggled through by people swallowing condoms full of cocaine. Uh, the supply and the demand in the U.S. is so massive, it's their biggest uh, buyer, that it's been brought in by planes, etc. So this is... And then, of course, we had the Contra deal on the go. That was exposed to the world during the sessions. Uh, that they were they were exchanging uh, cocaine for drugs, and, and uh, the cocaine was being sold on U.S. cities by the approval of the special Pentagon team. Do, does China still have a big opium or heroin trade? Uh, they'll still have it. So I'm sure it's cracked down on. But they will still exist at the top. Um, 
Britain, uh, because Britain was the first one into the opium crescent and into India and Afghanistan. That's why, that's why they're in Afghanistan too. Uh, when Bush um, authorized the redrawing of poppy, uh, which the Taliban had forbidden Afghanistan, uh, suddenly or the heroin, uh, which is a derivative of opium, started flowing into the U.S. again and Europe. And that's one of the biggest cash crops over over there now, and it's given protection by the U.S. military and the Canadian military. Uh, the, Britain was the first one into Afghanistan, the Khyber Pass, and they used all of the opium they could drive there. Uh, and since then, they made war on the world. But China was the first conquest through the use of opium uh, by the British and the Americans, especially, uh, that all belonged to the top um, Ivy League universities and secret societies. Well, I've even heard that that was one way that they found a way to do a, some kind of a balance of trade just because of those cash crops and uh, where we would take in our manufactured items and, and then the only way for them to pay us would be through these uh, drugs. Is are you? Um, I'm sure it is. I mean, I can remember... 10, maybe 12 years ago in Canada, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police uh, said the investigations that they had done on the major banks in Canada said that they'd all collapse if it wasn't for the illicit drug money being laundered through them. Well, I heard that for ours, too. <laughs> yeah, that's, that was in the mainstream media again. And, of course, nothing happened. There was no, no comments by parliamentarians or anything on it. But they did crack down on anybody that ever tried to put any cash in the bank and that they, they would notify. In other words, the guys at yeah. the top wanted to know who was who was possibly dealing so that, you know, they got their cut maybe. I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's all cuts. That's what the president of, Mary, uh, of, uh, of uh, Mexico was saying. He says, he says there's an awful lot of corruption, he says, in Mexico, but he... He says there's obviously high ups uh, in the U.S. authority system, authoritarian system. He says all involved in this too. So there's no doubt about it. It's a payoff scheme all the way down. And um, once again, we've got to understand that the law is not equal. It never was. They used to say there's a law for the rich and a law for the poor. Well, they should still be saying that because it's never changed. <laughs> and when you see the the Lord system in Britain, it's interesting when you get promoted up to a lord from a sir, etc., you now belong to a special peer group. Now, you cannot be tried by a common jury of commoners. You can only be tried by your peer group, and no peer group would ever, ever try a British lord. So it's pretty much the same in the U.S. system. These old families, the ones, the Ivy Leagues and so on, that have been involved in the Skull and Bones, all those characters that go to the Bohemian Grove, are pretty well untouchable. Uh, they'll never be brought on trial for anything because no authority is going to go after them, especially when all the top of the of your the police systems, etc., uh, are all on board in the same in the same uh, little happy family. Yeah. If if we got, I guess we kind of have our own little caste system already built in there. Then we just yes, yeah. I'm not sure exactly how it works, but um, I do know too that. Um, Quite a few years ago in Montreal, there was one of the. This was this was going on. For instance, they built up a police army, an internal police army across the Western world, under the guise of a war on drugs. That was the main reason for it. 
Now, most of the police that I've hired are persecuting motorists on the highway with tickets. That's what they end up doing. So it was nothing to do with persecuting the drug boys. But during the propaganda era, uh, they were showing us the drug busts. And it was great propaganda. But what they were doing was shipping uh, loads of stuff around to different places and different police forces would say, look what we found. And they show you all these, these, these packages of white stuff and all the rest of it. That's the last you'd hear about them. They were actually moving them around from place to place. And Montreal, on television, they, they showed you this wall of massive safes, steel doors, stacked, stacked full, full from the bottom to the top, every one of them with these packages of heroin. And about two weeks later, the newspaper said it all disappeared. They think it had been stolen. <laughs> it was such a farce. It's like our trillions. But, yeah, because, you see, all media is show business, and we don't think that, that the top of police and so on is involved in the show business. Of course they are. The top guys are definitely involved. The lesser boys, maybe not so much. But the top ones definitely are all involved in this. Because, as you say, the war on drugs had nothing to do with our true war on drugs. The war was simply an excuse to build up the internal armies of police for the coming war on terrorism that would be 20 years down the road. We're living in that now. Well, I don't know know if it was you or someone else that used used the term war on terror. Terror is is having kind of a... uh, you can take it different ways. I, I often call it too uh, the war of terror because um, if you look at revolutionary wars, especially the French Revolution, you had a reign of terror as soon as the, it, it started and they, they had seized major control of the Bastille and so on. Then the guillotine eventually went into operation and was, was busy chopping away for a long, long time uh, until it started to devour even people who'd helped fight the revolution, that's standard in this socialist system. Everyone gets used. Um, but you'll find they also uh, use a technique of depopulation in, China, in France as well. Because the socialists, the top socialists, who are also high Freemasons, and very wealthy guys too, belonging to an elite society, um, who didn't have their heads chopped up, had drawn up plans for restructuring France. And they said there would be too many people in France in the 1700s. So they were depopulating areas of the peasantry in all the different uh, provinces. This was followed up by the exact same technique when the Soviet Revolution came over, uh, took over, and uh, Lenin, and it's in all the history books today, um, Lenin gave orders, and you'll find documentation and copies and photographs of his orders, signed, sealed, and delivered, where he told all the top people to go all over the Soviet Union with their armies, and just grab hundreds of peasants here in this town, hundreds there, just anybody would do, just hang them in the trees and leave them to rot, to terrify the public. So you always have a reign of terror when they take over. That, that, that literally puts us into a Pavlovian state of shock. We don't know what to do, so we obey. Any ridiculous command, we obey. What you're, ha- what you're seeing today under the guise of the war on terror is a war of terror. They're terrorizing the entire planet. They're allowing, we're allowing ourselves, as we're in this shock state, to be fingerprinted, photographed, iris scanned, voice printed, have all our data collected, have no privacy whatsoever, uh, to hold up your pants at airports like a, like a slave, humiliated with no shoes on. That's what that's intended to do, by the way. 
Right. Um, this is all psychology and psychological uh, indoctrination we're getting to have no privacy, no rights whatsoever, and to go along with every new step that they give us until we're totally controlled from morning till night, every day of our lives. That's what it's about. This is a war of terror on the public, exactly as they've always used in the Soviet Union. Everyone in the Soviet Union was terrified, terrified that the government would eventually pull up their number and pull them in for questioning. Didn't matter who you were. Well, one of the ones that's spooky to me is these youth corps that they're going to be starting here, because that was how they, you know, they they found ways to turn families against their own, you know, afraid to speak in front of each other. Yes. Well, Hitler, the Hitler Youth did the same thing in Germany. They always use the youth. Whenever you see youth camps sprouting up, you're under that they're getting ideological indoctrination. That's what it's for. And, and strange enough, uh, Obama immediately started to give um, a big, big grants already to uh, education, as he called it, which is another way of saying ideological indoctrination for the youth. You are, you're seeing the same. Why change this, a system that's proven to work? These guys will always use the same formula when it's been proven to work in the past. Where, where do you think that came from? I mean, what the the um, model that uh, Lenin was following? Where do you think his came from? Uh, Lenin uh, and the socialist movement. See, the socialist movement. Uh, people don't realize how massive um, the revolutionary movements, as they called them in the 1800s, which really socialist movements were. Every country had them. London was the main base for them. In fact, the British Empire welcomed them. They sheltered Karl Marx and gave him protection to write his Communist Manifesto. He was simply a hack journalist that was given the job to do it. That was all. Didn't they and, even school uh, him? Didn't they even, didn't they even school him and, and others like uh, Hitler and, and Stalin? And, and, and those, didn't some of them uh, go to school of a sort in, those, in London? I don't think so. Okay. Stalin himself went to a Jesuit school. Most best, the better schools in Europe were Jesuit, uh, had Jesuit teachers. And um, Well, the Jesuits and, uh, had their own version of it, did they not? It, Jesuits, yeah, but Jesuits also um, were heavily involved in education in different schools as well. Uh, the mm-hmm. best ones were Jesuit, uh, had Jesuit teachers, uh, even in the U.S. for a long time as well. Um, to become a Jesuit, I think, takes 18 years really? of training. And even then, you're highly selected. To, uh, you'd be very intelligent and uh, be very, very good before you'd even passed. So they're, they're exceptional teachers. But um, So they start with them really young, then. Yeah, and you wouldn't have to be Catholic to go to their schools uh, or in Europe. That's how, how it was in the old days. It didn't matter if you were Jewish, Protestant, Catholic, or whatever. Uh, the better ones if you want a good education that you'd send your children off to the Jesuit schools and uh, Lenin went to a Jesuit school he was trained there um, Marx was from Germany and he was kicked out of Germany and given protection by the elite of London and backed again by the bankers because the bankers as I say were behind the whole idea of socialism uh, socialism wants a, would demand a central government, you see, mm-hmm. and a central bank. And that's exactly what the bankers wanted, because bankers, if they're lending to individuals, have to send their own henchmen out to try and get the money back if the people can't pay them. 
if you get a, a government that's federalized, centralized, then the government will have agencies and police and so on that will come and collect the tax for them. That they, they then pay to the bankers. So it's much easier for these banking fraternities to get their money. That's why they advocate centralization. So um, they backed uh, socialism, if not invented it, in fact, uh, in a controlled society. Because, once again, bankers depend on long-term interest coming in, massive interest, generational, intergenerational loans. It might take five generations to pay off a particular debt. Britain only paid off its debt for World War I in 1990. It's still paying off World War II and Korea. So they're intergenerational. We don't realize that bankers, that I'm talking about international bankers, 13 families really mm -hmm. uh, lend to the entire planet. Uh, and they all pick their, their leaders because they do have a leader uh, every, every 10 years or so. Um, they pick the leader from amongst themselves. Uh, they're the ones who advocate social, world socialism because it suits their purpose. They deal with intergenerational payments, um, they're ensured that uh, governments will make sure that all loans are paid from the taxpayer and the governments themselves will use some of that tax money to to create agencies and polices and so on uh, that will collect the taxes to pay the loans off. And in fact, when Lincoln, uh, after this right at the end of the Civil War, American Civil War, and it's in the Congressional Records, the, the letter, uh, of, of the telegraph that he got from Karl Marx is there. Karl Marx congratulated Lincoln. He says, he says because it's a must, he says, for, he, was, he says, I congratulate you, you for, for making the, the central, centralizing government and making it stronger. That's an essential plank in the manifesto. And do you think that was a concerted effort on his part? Um, I think we're, we're given a very vague, distorted, and whitewashed version of pretty well all history. Mm -hmm. To be honest with you, yeah. Oh, that I that I'm not. <laughs> I don't doubt. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, too, it's like uh, Benjamin Disraeli said. He was a prime minister of Britain in the 1800s. He says, he says the public don't know. He says they have no imagination of of the real power that's behind the scenes that controls the destiny of nations. Yeah. Well. Do you see anything positive that we can do or coming out of this? Are you, I mean, because you're so dedicated at educating the public on what is going on. Yeah. You have to have some kind of hope of sorts to even be doing that, I would figure. You have to have a, a hope, but you also must have some connection to life itself. Um, I think today the, the problem is, the problem has been caused and the problem is really the result of attack on the general public. People feel so isolated, so uh, so into themselves, egocentric, is this what uh, Bertrand Russell says. If we can create an egocentric society, they won't care what's happening to other people. The individual will be too happy in a little bubble. But you see, again, ironically, the enemy of this socialist system is true individuality. And... Um, the United Nations has stated that too, that the enemy of the United Nations and world socialism is individuality. Under socialism, you've got to be part, you're the cog in the machine, uh, you get no special privilege, you're, you're just a, a, say, you're a servant to the world state, your purpose is to serve the world state. So until people recapture their individuality, uh, it's game over. And 
we've got to get out of this little bubble of contentment at the television, uh, sucking at the teeth at the television and uh, filling our faces with junk food or whatever else we're doing, and start realizing what happens to people across the world or across your state even, or even uh, next door to you, um, reflects on you. Um, you can't let things ha- bad things to happen to other people by your government. You can't allow your governments to do nasty things because eventually they're going to come round to you. Right. So you have to have a, a principle to stand for in the first place. Most people don't have any principles left except they'll only fight for the things they're told to fight for, sustainable de- development, uh, depopulation, greening, etc. It's whatever they're programmed to, to demand, they demand. And they don't realize they've got to stand up as individuals, but they've got to stop right away. And you cannot compromise with totalitarianism. You have to start demanding that they abolish the data banks on every individual that's taking over your privacy. You've got to start demanding that they abolish the state's supposed rights to govern your children. That's not what governments are there for. When governments are bent on social policy and and behavior modification of the populace, that is a different function altogether, and it's not elected government. That's totalitarianism. Well, another aspect that they they seem to be bent on is trying to destroy the belief systems of people. Yeah. And... and Well, that was essential, because, and again... um, the, the revolutionary movements funded by the banks had all that figured out too in the, in the 1800s and before uh, because um, you cannot as I say when you take a culture and you stand back and look at a people and its culture um, the one common thing they have is a common value system that comes as part of your culture so you have a value system of human life each other's lives and uh, you also have a, a simple rule, simple rules of the tribe, or taboos, as they used to call them before religions. Everyone knew the tab- taboos. You didn't need police officers, etc., etc., to do things that the people knew what to do. And government, of course, must supplant all natural functions in society, but to supplant them, they must destroy that which held and bound society together, common principles. Well, if, if they destroy uh, all of our uh, ability to, I mean, if they, if they make everything we do illegal and they destroy mm-hmm. all the ability to understand the difference between moral and immoral because they've made it, it's just kind of like our laws, they've made them ab- absurd. Yeah. And, and so once going back to something simpler and, and having some basic morals, mm-hmm. you're, they're, you know, we, that is one of the basics we're going to have to have to even do what you're talking yes, about. Yes, absolutely. Uh, government is not in the business of uh, guiding culture. That, that's not the purpose of government. never was. When it is in the business of guiding and altering and directing cultural changes and political correctness and new normals, then it's not an elected government. It's an agenda. Now, Thomas Jefferson said that this very thing. And you find it in his memoirs, in his letters. He says, "He says when you see, when you see an agenda, the same things being pushed through between houses. He meant between changes in political parties in Congress. He says, know then that you're under tyranny, because technically, when a new house comes in, it can throw out all the laws of the previous house if it wants to. That never happens. 
before, that would be nice. <laughs> yeah. But he said that when you see the same... Now, since you've been born, I'm sure, right up to the present time, um, everything that UN has mandated and everything that's been signed has been implemented in your country and across the world by all the other signatories to the treaties. Uh, therefore, you're under an agenda, an ongoing, pre-planned, step-by-step agenda to world government and a totally controlled society. We're under tyranny already, even though they keep up the pretense of democracy and voting and all this nonsense. Right. We are under an agenda, and it's never faltered because it's using scientific principles of indoctrination through the school, through all media, through entertainment, to control us every step of the way and guide us. As I say, they never mention any of this when they elect us. It's always the welfare system, education system, health, etc. That's all they talk about. They never go into the fact that they're given massive power to what are supposedly services like a health service. The health service is now an authority that mandates that we get inoculations. Right. Police services were exactly that. There were police services and the public could kick them out if they didn't do their job or they didn't do what the public wanted. Now they're called police enforcers and authorities. We've been taken over by changes in terminology gradually in its psycholinguistics. And all it takes is one generation to miss what's happening and then the the next generation is born into will think it's all quite normal. Children who were born in 2001 uh, will shortly be teenagers in a few years ready for the military. They've been born into a world where martial law is the normal. And the guys in the black suits and machine guns are, are the good guys as they kick the peasants around. We don't realize we have massive indoctrination is going on all the time. You can't even watch a comedy without being programmed in political correctness. Right. This is coordination. Exactly what Bertrand Russell said would happen. The entertainment industry is your main method. In fact, you can get more cultural changes put through through entertainment than non-fiction. Because we don't realize that we're actually being indoctrinated through the entertainment Right. Well, you know, Alan, I really appreciate you uh, staying up extra late and, and again, educating our audience on uh, uh, a lot of the research and, and things that you have uh, done. And is there any, would you like to go ahead and give us your websites again and, and say anything else in closing? Yes, they can look into my website at cuttingthematrix.com. And I've got books and discs there for sale, but there's hundreds and hundreds of hours of talks for free they can download and listen to for I go over much of this in more detail. And they can also go into Alan Watt Sentient, Sentinel.eu, where they can get transcripts um, of these talks and print them up. And uh, they're written in the different languages of Europe. Well, again, Alan, I want to thank you, and I hope you know, we'll have you up again sometime. It's been a pleasure. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you.